Assalamualaikum and hello everyone. My name is Muhi Khwaja with American Muslim Community Foundation. Today on the Muslim Philanthropy Podcast, we are pleased to have on Phil Buchanan, who is the president at the Center for Effective Philanthropy. Welcome to the show, Phil. Thanks, Muhi. Great to be here. Yeah, so, you know, we've had an opportunity to meet in the past um, when you were visiting the San Francisco Bay Area at the Silicon Valley Venture Fund. Um, and was, were listening to you talk about your book, Giving Done Right. Um, so thank you for being a guest on the show. Yeah, it's an honor. I'm, I'm glad to be here with you. Likewise. Um, so for those of us, uh, for those that don't know you, can you please share a little bit more about um, your background and where you grew up or went to school and anything else that you'd like to share? Sure. Yeah. I was born in Toronto, Canada. Um, we, my family moved to Oregon when I was about six months old. And, uh, so I grew up mostly in, in, well, entirely in Portland, Oregon, really. Uh, and, um, uh, really never was sure what I wanted to do. Uh, <laughs> definitely didn't think I would end up in, in philanthropy, but, um, I was, I think, you know, quite influenced by my dad who was, um, quite an activist, uh, and, um, was, uh, you know, in ways that I admired, although in ways sometimes I questioned, you know, the wisdom of lying on train tracks, uh, that took the nuclear warheads up to Washington state and getting arrested or, wow. you know, earlier before I was born, he had been ar arrested in, in a civil rights protest in, at a lunch counter in North Carolina. And so I, I admired his sort of uh, dedication to try to make some kind of positive difference in the world. Um, and I think for a long time, I thought I would do that through journalism. That was my, that was my focus. Um, uh, I went to college at Wesleyan in Connecticut and was the nerdy person who was like the editor of the student newspaper. And, uh, and then, um, and then, uh, went back, uh, to work at Wesleyan. I, I went away for a little while, went back uh, to work as the assistant to the president there, um, then ended up working for an interim president who became president of Mount Holyoke College. So I was the 25-year-old um, guy who was the assistant to the president of the oldest women's college in the country. Uh, and that was it's a really interesting experience. She, she was an incredible mentor to me. I learned a lot about leadership from her. And then I still like was not clear that I was getting to my late 20s, like, what am I doing career-wise? Because this is a fun job, but it's not really leading anywhere. Uh, and so I went to business school um, and then I worked in strategy consulting in the corporate world for a little while. And, um, you know, I think uh, I learned a lot, but I was always thinking of my dad who had died when I was 14. And like, I thought, okay, my dad would not approve of this, uh, this career choice as I was, you know, trying to help companies increase their profitability in various ways, you know, not that, the, you know, he would have thought, you know, Phil, you could do, you could do more, you could do something that has a little more purpose uh, and uh, positive, you know, influence on the world. And so, so anyway, I ended up as the first staff member hired by a sort of dysfunctional founding board of, of CEP uh, with, when there was a very little bit of money raised and a kind of vague idea of what the organization might do. Awesome. Thank you for, for, sharing your journey to CEP. Um, and what would you say in those experiences kind of prepared you for CEP? Well, one of the things about higher ed was um, 
it's a enterprise that cannot be evaluated you know in the way that you evaluate a company right like the you can look at the financial statements and that doesn't really tell you what you really want to know so i was very interested in this question of like how do you assess the performance of mission-driven institutions whose um ultimate impact really cannot be summarized by like a single number right it's way more complicated than that and and institutions with lots of resources and potential um and so 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 that that higher ed experience definitely um i think prepared me for the idea that you know working with foundations um we would try to help them think about well how how are they doing and how could they do better um and there were lots of analogies you know uh for me like like one of the early things we did at cep was create the grantee perception report which is this large-scale confidential comparative survey of nonprofits about their experiences with foundations and you know the analogy to me was sort of to student surveys in the college world in, in the following way sure which is that on an absolute basis as cynical as nonprofits might be about about foundations on an absolute basis they rate the foundations that are funding them highly right because they're the foundations that are funding them and the data only gets really interesting when you look at it on a comparative basis and it was the exact same thing with student survey data in colleges like people like college you know in general uh but but then how do the experiences of students at a particular college compare on various dimensions to another college that's where it starts to get really meaningful and interesting and then you can mine that data for insight so there were lots of analogies there um, so I think that that was one 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 way, uh, and and then um, I guess you know the other thing that I really took in particular I had, I you know I respect and admire both the college presidents that I worked for, but um, I worked longer for uh, much longer for a woman named Joanne Crichton who uh, had been the inter vice president for academic affairs and then interim president at Wesleyan and then president of Mount Holyoke and. One of the things I admired her about leader her about her leadership is that she's just she was brutally candid, uh, just open and transparent uh, per, in in her time at Mount Holyoke, where she walked into some real real issues uh, and just kind of you know put it out there and said like we're going to engage this as a community, we're not going to spin anything, and um, I saw the power of 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 trust when you can really have trust uh, in that way uh, as, as a leader and the way in which that can mobilize people to work together, you know, to confront shared problems rather than always thinking of, well, you know, the leader, the leadership is sort of separate and not to be trusted. And, you know, so, so that, that's something I took from her just as, as a mentor and that I, I'm sure I, have imperfectly exemplified that as as a as a leader of a much obviously smaller organization uh but but i've tried you know i've really tried to hold on to that and and try to to influence you know foundation leaders in in that way as well yeah and i i think you bring up a great point about you know mentorship and kind of having those people in your career um that help show you whether it's literally like 
guiding you or through their example, right, of how they deal with things and being a close observer of that. Um, So thank you for sharing um, about um, her and how it has transformed your leadership as well. Um, In terms of um, CEP, what are the main programs and services that you guys currently offer? Um, And definitely, you know, it's been great to hear that you guys had done those surveys for the grantees and kind of like, how is that first one of those early projects, you know, led to so many other projects at CEP? Yeah, no, that's exactly what happened is, is we realized, boy, there is real power in elevating the perspective uh, of those who can't really be totally honest with those they fund, right? Uh, because of the power dynamic, the power dynamic between the funder and and those who are seeking uh, funding. So, so the grantee perception report has become, you know, something that hundreds of foundations have used as a way to really understand the experience of grantees. And it's allowed us to compare um, across foundations and also mine that large comparative data set for insights about, you know, what makes for a strong relationship between a nonprofit uh, and a funder. What are nonprofits really looking for? Uh, what do they most value uh, from, from their foundation funders? Um, and so we've created various other analogous uh, tools. We have a comparative donor survey for community foundations, for example. We have a declined applicant uh, survey. We do a lot of more custom advisory work with foundations and donors that really play into our capabilities in survey design, in data analysis. But then we have a whole research agenda of grant-funded research that um, taps some of those data sets, but also we create other data sets through um, both qualitative interviews, surveys, to do things like benchmark, you know, how has philanthropy responded to the crises of 2020? Uh, We have three reports on our website about foundations in particular. You know, have they changed their practices? Um, Have they changed who's funded? Are they supporting more communities of color? Are they supporting more organizations led by people of color? And we're we're able to track those kinds of uh, issues and questions. Uh, We have other research on how nonprofits are experiencing this time of crisis or um, issues related to questions of foundations and their influence on policy or Um, how individual donors might best interact and build relationships with foundations. So there's a whole research component. Um, And then we have all of the programming and external relations. We do events, webinars. We have a a podcast, which is uh, very creatively also called Giving Done Right, uh, that we launched last fall. My my colleague, Grace Nicolette, and I co-host that podcast. And that's really aimed at individual donors in in particular. those are the main programs of CEP. We also have an initiative that sits within CEP, which is a little different, and it's sort of separately branded called Youth Truth. It's youthtruthsurvey.org. And I'll spare you the long origin story there, but it's a student survey aimed at um, informing education funders, as well as school districts and charter management organizations, about the experience of young people in schools, both academically and in terms of the overall climate. Uh, and that's been that's been a really fun project and really important in this period of of isolation for for so many young people. 
Yeah, you know, the the data centric uh, focus is really critical. And, you know, AMCF started in 2016 with like a strategic plan and an idea of a minimum viable product being donor advised funds. Um, I I would say that we knew the concept, but we necessarily didn't know what we were getting into in terms of like uh, the ins and outs and all of the intricacies and, you know, people have their opinions on donor advised funds, whether they're a tool for the wealthy. Um, and right. we really wanted to flip the script, right? We we brought the minimums down to 2,500 to open a DAF. Um, yeah. We hadn't even invested donor advised fund dollars until 2021. Uh, and we did that purposely because we wanted to get money out the door. We told the donors, yeah. you're joining our community foundation because you want to make a direct impact and we need to do that fast. Um, and we've been able to give out $3.5 million since 2017. Um, only working with 108 families now. Um, so, you know, we're interested to see how our data looks over the last four years and are partnering with uh, Giving USA and DAFRC to share our data sets um, to kind of That's further awesome. go into, you know, our people funding religious uh, houses of worship, mosques, or international relief agencies or educational institutions. And, all of that great stuff that Giving USA looks into. So we're really excited to see um, kind of what comes from it. Um, and, you know, I think it's so important in telling the story. Um, and that's why our podcast and everything that we do is hashtag Muslim philanthropy, because we want to be telling that story of how Muslims are giving not only to Muslim led or Muslim focused institutions, but overall all nonprofit organizations. Um, and there's some data from the Institute for Social Policy and Understanding, ISPU, uh, that did in a report on American Muslim philanthropy that showcases that Muslims are just as likely to give to causes outside of our faith-based community than we are within our faith-based community. Yeah, I mean, that's so important. Uh, there's so much in what you just said. I feel like that um, brings up thoughts for me about um, first of all, I was in a conversation recently and somebody said something that, you know, really kind of, um, set me back a little bit, which was, um, to sort of describe data as almost like a tool of the man, you know, uh, and, mm. and I'm like, well, actually, you know, I suppose it can be, anything can be a tool of the man, right. You know, but actually it is data that allows us to understand inequity, right? It is, it, it's data that, that, that allows us to see that the criminal justice system doesn't treat, you know, people fairly, you know, or uh, incarcerate people at the same rates, you know, or it, it, it is data that allows right. us to see, you know, school discipline is um, racist, right? And it is data that allows you to see um, the, the the scale scope and diversity of muslim philanthropy right and so like data can be a force for progress and equity and it's so important that we think of it that way um and then the other thing that that i am a little puzzled by that has increasingly been described as a tool of the man um is philanthropy right and and right. and again like anything right uh, i suppose um that can be true you know and sometimes is true, um, but also uh, it can be a tool for 
you know, empowerment and mobilization. And you think about um, the period we've just experienced in this country, um, some of the folks who make that argument sort of idealize government, right? Say, well, it is government that we should rely on to do this or that or the other and not philanthropy. But, but you know, it was government that was targeting explicitly Muslim people, right? So yeah. who's there? Who's there to fight against that? And, it and is what's nonprofit organizations supported by philanthropy, you know? Yeah. So, so it's really important that we remember that how vital that is, right? To have that countervailing force to say, no, this is wrong and, and, and to fight against it. Sorry. No, I was just going to say, and it's funny because there's even a movement within the government to also fund surveillance of Muslim and minority communities. And they give it out in the form of grants to nonprofits to do work. Uh, right. and, and they call it countering violence extremism, CVE. Right. So, you know, there's a whole other issue of then Muslim led institutions accepting this money to then go back to the government and say, you know, we checked all the boxes. We, we talked yeah. about how extremism is bad. And, you know, there's all strings attached to that funding as well. So I, I see it on both sides. And, you know, for philanthropy, we want to be showcasing, um, you know, the benefits of it to society. You know, Melinda Gates is often quoted saying that, you know, philanthropy is where you know, the lack of government funding kind of steps in, right? Um, yeah. And then there's also uh, an initiative called Philanthropy Together, uh, where they promote giving circles and everything. And they often talk about demystifying, democratizing and decolonizing philanthropy. Um, yeah. So again, this whole idea of, you know, education on philanthropy and the impact that it can have, let's focus on the good that it does um, and, you know, it's not something just for the rich and wealthy, uh, but it's something that everybody does, whether they're have the capacity and means to, or they're doing it through their time, talent and treasure. Uh, what is that measurement of philanthropy? And it's beyond dollars, right? Um, Absolutely. So, yeah. Yeah. And, and, and also the history, right? Like, and, and the history in um, Muslim society, right? Going mm -hmm. back to the eighth century and walks, if I'm saying that word yes. right. Uh, yeah. And, you know, it, institutions intended to look after communities for the long haul. And totally. the, the relationship between that idea and that mm -hmm. incredibly long history, right? And, and other forms of institutions intended to better communities for the long haul, like American foundations. Like there's so much interesting um, tradition and history there that's rooted, I think, in this human, you know, desire and you can you know, it, it kind of inclination and you can find it in Muslim society, you can find it in other religious traditions, you know, to care for others and to care for community of course, and yeah. and like this is something that even as we are clear-eyed about the way things can be misused we need to um i think encourage and celebrate as as one of the best parts of like
the human instinct, you know? So I, I just think there's, um, I, 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 I'm worried as you can tell that, that, um, that we don't, um, celebrate enough and encourage enough that instinct in people. Yeah. And I think, you know, I appreciate you bringing up the idea of waqfs and essentially it's an Arabic word that translates to endowments, right? So these right. were right. people who through their wills and estates were encouraged to leave their wealth to establish um, things and whether it was land that was specifically used for the crops to then benefit the community or say a well to then give water to the entire, you know, different tribes in the area instead of just one tribe. Um, or there's examples of women who inherited funds that then established Al-Qarawin University, which is credited as the oldest university in the world, which is in Morocco. Um, so yeah. there's clear examples through history of uh, Muslim philanthropists um, who use these endowments and wills to really um, care for society. And if you look at the Greek definition of philanthropy, the love of mankind, really that's what it's all about, right? So I, I appreciate you bringing that up as well. Um, you know, I, I would love to for you to talk more about not only your podcast, but mainly your book, Giving Done Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. So what, what, why did you want to write Giving Done Right? All right? Part of it goes to what I just said, which is like, I think that there's an underappreciation, at least in this country, which is what I know um, best in terms of you know, uh, philanthropy, an underappreciation of the role that philanthropy and the nonprofit sector has played and can play that is distinct from business and government. I, I just don't think we've societally like held that up enough, appreciated it enough. And in fact, there's a lot of sort of um, negative stereotypes and kind of instinctive dissing of nonprofits that goes on that I wanted to counter by saying, you know, actually, and, I, and certainly we've seen this in the last year post COVID, you know, the her heroism of organizations serving communities that have been disproportionately hard hit by both the pandemic and the economic impacts, um, you know, it, it, the, the way that they have had to, you know, pivot their operations, you know, just capturing um, in yeah. the book that spirit so that donors would then approach the enterprise of giving with the humility and respect for the people on the other end that is required to be effective, I think. Uh, and so, so I wanted to inspire people with, with those stories as well as practical advice, uh, but also to, and who knows whether a book can really have an effect on people, but stop people from making the predictable mistakes that so many donors make, which is like the flip side of what I was just talking about, which is believing, you know, because they made a lot of money in business, all they have to do is, you know, use their business acumen, you know, to disrupt poverty as if that's going to be as easy as, you know, Uber disrupting the taxi industry. Not that that was easy, but it's a heck of a lot easier. Underestimating the distinct challenges of this work, the way strategy is different when the dynamics are collaborative rather than competitive uh, because your strategy has to, actually has to be shared across entities, unlike in business where it has to be uh, distinct and different and, and, and closely guarded. Or the ways performance measurement 
are different, which I alluded to before, when when the ultimate impact cannot be boiled down to something like profit or appreciation of 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 of, of a equity valuation. You know, so how do you approach performance assessment then in a thoughtful way uh, to get better? Uh, how do you how do you not make the mistakes that so many donors make when they look for the analog to profit and they focus on silly metrics like overhead ratios that don't really tell you anything and that can actually right. undermine uh, a nonprofit's efficacy. So so it was really that. It was like frustration with the predictable mistakes and my desire to try to you know do something that would reduce the chances that those mistakes get repeated, but also inspiration about what good can be done. Um, and And those same kind of animating motivations are behind the podcast as well, where we're just trying to bring people on to, to, you know, um, help donors understand yeah, how hard it is actually to be effective in, in your giving and, and, and what are some of the ways that, that you can maximize the chances that you will be. Yeah. I think, you know, in, in, in the method of like celebrating giving, right. Um, AMCF in 2020, established our Muslim philanthropy awards to really recognize everyone from philanthropists to volunteer fundraisers to businesses doing a good job of giving back um, to nonprofit organizations that are should be recognized. Um, so we really wanted to play a role in that celebration of charitable giving. Um, and that. it's something that we hope to continue to, to do. Um, in regards to you know, the, the book and the podcast, um, I highly recommend everybody check it out, uh, Giving Done Right. Um, and I've had the pleasure of reading through your book and we even auctioned it off uh, at our <laughs> annual symposium and it did go for sale and somebody bought it. So don't worry. <laughs> I, I, I'm not um, even going to ask for how much. This is $4. No, no. We started it at about maybe 20 and it ended up going for 80. So, you know. It, oh, yeah. All right. Yeah, totally. <laughs> it worked. Um, and, uh, you know, we really appreciate um, your voice in in telling this story. And um, I think that it's incredibly important for not only nonprofit leaders, but just like you're saying, people who are giving to really understand um, how they can be more effective with their charitable giving. And we hope that donor advised funds are part of that story. And if we can kind of right. rebrand what DAFs do right. um, and how they're used and flip the script on getting more money out to the community, um, yeah. you know, I think that the overall impact uh, can be increased. Um, so along those, uh, along those lines of like, getting funding out the door. Um, yep. What can mainstream philanthropy do to give more effectively in supporting marginalized and minority-led community organizations? Yeah, there's so much. I mean, I don't even know where to start. I mean, one thing is get over the sort of um, fetishization, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, of sure. scale, right? Mm -hmm. Like, Which is another thing that comes out of the business world. So it is true that sometimes the right thing is for organizations to grow and go to different geographies. But often the most effective thing actually is to support organizations that are small and rooted in community. Why? Because they're trusted by those communities, right? So, so part of what we have to do is just break out of some of these mindsets that we have. Like um, 
I wrote on the on our blog, uh, CEP.org, a little bit about um, an organization called um, World Relief Seattle and what they faced in the immediate aftermath of the pandemic. So this is an organization mm -hmm. that works with immigrants, refugees, asylum seekers, helps them get their feet on the ground in their new country, helps them get employment, um, provides a variety of other services. When the pandemic hit, um, many of their former clients were working in the hospitality industry and were immediately unemployed. They could not feed their families. So where did they go? Well, they went not to the food bank. They went to World Relief Seattle. Why? Because they trusted the people there who looked like them, who had stories like theirs, uh, and they knew that they would be safe going there. So what does World Relief Seattle do? They have to you know, suddenly become a, a, a food bank. They partnered with the big food bank and deliver food for a while until um, things were sorted out. And, and um, the point there is that organization's effectiveness in meeting the needs of that community was about it being in that community. And so smallness right. was an asset, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I think I think that's that's part of it. Another piece is recognizing um, the role of inequity, structural racism uh, in almost everything. You know, so so you can read. So you asked, what can mainstream philanthropy do? Like you can read. This is maybe a little less true now than it was a year ago, two or three years ago. But you could go and read the strategy statements of foundations working on an issue like education or the environment. And they won't even mention issues of race and racism, right? Sure. Well, yeah. but how how can you work on environment environmental issues in the United States and not take into account the degree to which people of color have been disproportionately, you know, impacted by exposure to toxins? How can you work on education and not take into account the structures of racism that have led to disproportionate poverty that means people come in, at, you know, with different um, advantages or disadvantages, or, you know, not engage the school discipline differences, right? So, so recognizing that these questions of, um, of marginalized uh, groups, you know, this is not its own program area. This is every program area, right? You, you, that, that to, to think of, to think about it that way. Um, and then very practically, um, and again, you know, I'm, I'm not sure exactly what you mean when you say mainstream philanthropy, but I, I think of, you know, I think of foundations, but also individual donors, you know, understanding like, and asking the question, like, who are we supporting? Like, right. is this organization, what does its board look like? Uh, what does its leadership look like? You know, how many times, uh, and, and this gets a this gets a little tricky because I do not want to be heard as saying, you know, only people from a community can do work that benefits a community. Sure, uh, I, that's 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 too simplistic, and and I think that's not the message I want to send. But 
we need to be more skeptical because there have been so many examples of solutions that come solutions that come from outside uh air quotes a community that are imposed on a community without an understanding of what that community actually wants and needs and i tell lots mm -hmm. of stories of that in the in the book including yeah. um you know bill and melinda gates who have done lots of good things but the, deciding that what poor people in developing countries really needed to do was raise chickens uh and launch this big initiative and Bill Gates wrote on his blog, if I were poor, that's what I would do. I would raise chickens. And you know, the, the government of Bolivia said, we don't want your chickens. Like, and, 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 and the lack of connection to the people who you are seeking to help to understand whether however much sense it might make when the McKinsey consultant or whoever draws it up, if it's not what people want for their own lives, you know, they should have some voice in that. And and I think that's the same mistake that played out in the Newark Public Schools with Mark Zuckerberg's initiative, sure. so many other examples. So we have got to recognize and trust the leadership that exists within these communities and support that leadership rather than coming into these donor nonprofit relationships and transactions with the going in assumption that the nonprofit doesn't know what they're doing or nonprofits are ineffective or I know more than they do, you know, which is how so much philanthropy, I'm too much philanthropy happens with this kind of distrust and disrespect of the valuable uh, knowledge that nonprofit leaders in community have. Yeah. And even to the Gates Foundation, right, they they try to champion local partners, right? Um, so where the disconnect came from, that that's interesting to see and maybe more telling to kind of further um, look into. But at the same time, you know, it's, it's hard to argue against some of the overall impact that they've seen. Uh, but it's good to always have that critical eye in terms of how they develop and what they do and um, how it's implemented. So I think it's fair. Yeah, and yeah. Let, let me say, I mean, like on the global health area, you know, and there's lots of criti criticisms of them, but but I believe that they have contributed to, you know, massive decreases in, in childhood mortality, right? Right. Um, right. In meaningful ways. So so it's it I there there's lots of good stuff that the Gates Foundation has done. What's true of most big donors um, and most big foundations and certainly true of the Gates Foundation, is they are simultaneously an example of giving done right and giving done wrong. You know, <laughs> and, and they because I could point to areas where I think that they've done fabulous work right. and then areas, including US public education, where the number of missteps that I think could have been avoided with a little more yeah. humility uh, and engagement of different different constituents is, you know, really not great. You know, so so I think both things, both things are true. Maybe that's a title for for an upcoming book, Giving Done Wrong. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, so to one of our colleagues' points, Maggie Osborne, who's also been on the podcast, she talks about yeah, she's um, uh, she talks about how these policies that we draft and even in the MOUs of our documents that the vision doesn't come through to that level, right? It's a very right. contractual 
uh, agreement totally. between a donor and an organization or a foundation and a nonprofit. But if they really had these visions and goals of diversity, equity, and inclusion and getting funding to the right places and, and building community, why isn't that in the MOU? Um, and, and that's something that AMCF, you know, when we heard that, we're like, okay, we got to revise it. Like we just did the right. cookie cutter type right. of thing. Um, but hopefully now going forward, our new contracts, whether it's for fiscal sponsorship or endowments or uh, giving circles and donor advice funds, we want to revise those to really have our end goal talk about um, the communal effect of charitable giving together and how we can hopefully change the perception of Muslims in this country through our charitable giving um, and yeah. talk about how we need allies to do that beyond the, the Muslim community itself. And I really hope that this is an opportunity for mainstream philanthropy to kind of create a, a joint fund, you know, whether it's like the Borealis or Change Philanthropy or so many other examples where they've come around um, marginalized communities and funded for several years different initiatives. And I think it's about time that we invite community foundations and other philanthropists to do the same thing for for Muslim-led and Muslim-focused institutions in this country as well. Yeah, no, that's great. And and I think, I mean, one of the things that um, is true is that um, the good, really good donors will recognize when they're so distant from something that they care about, that they need to to trust others to allocate their resources, right? right. You know, so, um, and, and there's an instinctive worry about doing that because additional transaction costs and, you know, all that kind of thing. But I think on so many different issues, um, the right thing sometimes can be to say, hey, we are not experts in this, but we wanna be part of a pooled fund or a, you know, a shared effort that is exactly. steered by folks who really get it and we will trust them to allocate those resources. Yeah, so that's definitely an initiative over the next year or so that I'm committed to hopefully seeing. And, um, you know, I think the opportunity is there um, and I yeah. think it's about time that, that we get there as well. Um, awesome. So, you know, I've really enjoyed chatting with you and, and just a few more questions before we close out, um, you know, beyond all of the philanthropy talk, beyond work, um, you know, what else is keeping you busy these days? Yeah, uh, <laughs> um, trying to teach my 16 year old how to drive. Nice. Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, with, you know, and remaining calm while doing so. Um, <laughs> and, uh, then spending like a lot of people in the relatively early days of, you know, quarantine, uh, we got a puppy, uh, so I spend nice. uh, a lot of time with her, um, just like walking in the woods uh, near near where we live. Um, so you know, and then and then also like a lot of people, probably uh, too much you know Netflix uh, binge watching. Uh, but uh, trying to try to trying to read uh, also and and read. Uh, less nonfiction. I read too much nonfiction and trying to mm -hmm. force myself to re read more fiction. <laughs> nice. Uh, for the driving, like, I feel like that's definitely one of those rites of passages of like, 
you know, as a teenager, that was like one of the things I was looking forward to the most. Um, and, and I got my start in a ratty old 1988 Honda Accord. Um, so I think my dad paid like less than 800 bucks for it. It was like, right. <laughs> right. I remember what those ones look like. Those yeah. Honda Accords. Yeah. 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 With the yeah. flip up headlights and everything. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, uh, my favorite question asking all of the people who attend the podcast is what are your three favorite charities? That's a very, you know, like I get in a lot of trouble. I will say, I will answer <laughs> it, answer it in the following way. Three of my favorite, uh, organizations, uh, one, you know, one, one organization that I just think is phenomenal, uh, is Equal Justice Initiative led by Brian Stevenson, and uh, definitely, I think most most people know about them. But yeah. I think one of the one of the cool things about EJI and Brian is that they have simultaneously dealt with, um, you know, as everybody knows, if you've read Just Mercy or watched the movie, you know, both of which I highly recommend. You know, he advocated on behalf of individual people, right? Who who had been uh, unjustly, um, you know, in imprisoned, but but also uh, sh shows how an organization can work on that level of the problem while also seeking to address kind of the root cause issues through criminal justice reform. But even deeper than that, you know, through an examination of our history of racism and of dehumanizing, um, you know black people and other people of color in this country reckoning with that history like all of these things are linked and their ability to work at all those different levels i think is amazing uh yeah. two two other uh, i'll just i like the organizations i wrote about in the book you know and i was able to get get to know them so like i wrote about this organization called epiphany community uh, 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 uh echoes uh epiphany community health outreach services in houston texas which is like your you know in a way it's like your typical community health organization serving very impoverished people, $500,000 budget and amazing executive director and amazing staff who do, you know, so much to serve people who desperately need help. And I, I, I love them in part because they're both exceptional and organizations like that and people like that are in every community. And, and, and so, so they're awesome. Um, and I don't know, another another organization that I write about in the book, which I think is great, uh, is uh, called Bell Excel, which works on the issue of summer learning loss uh, for low income kids, which mm. is basically the academic backsliding occurs for all kids in the summer, but it's more pronounced for kids sure. uh, from low income backgrounds. And, and anything we can do in this country to try to close this gap of just opportunity, you know, and and it's so incredibly wide. And the woman who ran it at the time that I wrote the book is named Tiffany Cooper Guy, who's one of my the nonprofit leaders I admire the most. And she's now at uh, Blue Meridian, which is a funder oh, yeah. collaborative. Yeah. And mm -hmm. she's about to become our board chair, actually, uh, at CEP. Nice. So that's another organization that I really admire. But I could go on and on. There's so many. <laughs> That's really great. And I appreciate you bringing each of those up because they also serve a different area of need within this country. Um, right. And I had the opportunity to listen to Brian Stevenson Q 
keynote at the Association of Fundraising Professionals conference and was just blown away and inspired and just energized by the work that he does. Um, so I'll definitely look into the other two organizations as well and learn more about them. Um, and we have a nonprofit directory on our website that allows people to kind of learn about these different types of organizations. Um, and essentially the donor advice funds and giving circles can give to those nonprofits. And, um, you know, we're trying to do what we can to um, bring more exposure to these organizations by inviting them on this podcast and sharing our uh, best practices, leadership development, capacity building webinars uh, with them as well. So uh, if you're a nonprofit that's not on our directory, check out our website and fill out the eligibility form. Um, so Phil, uh, is there anything else that you'd like to share that we maybe didn't cover? No, I, I, I do want to say that, um, yeah, I really admire what you're doing, oh, Muhi, you. and I, I appreciate your take on donor advised funds, like whatever, whatever one thinks about, you know, how they should be regulated differently or not, mm -hmm. or, or whatever. It is the case that. Uh, they can be a vehicle for, um, you know, everyday givers to totally. to give uh, uh, more more easily. And and so, um, yeah, I just appreciate what you're doing and appreciate, you know, being able to spend this time with you. Really enjoyed it. Yeah, of course. Likewise, you know, keep up the great work at CEP and excited to see and follow some of that data and hopefully even get some of our data uh, to you as well so that we can help tell the story more. Um, so Phil, I really appreciate your time. This was an enlightening conversation and I'm looking forward to um, being a colleague of yours continued. So thank you so much for, for being sure. on the show. Thank you again for having me. Definitely.